You need to understand that the Christian life is a battle from the beginning to the end. From the moment you first take your spiritual breath to the moment you take your last physical breath, your life is a battle. And the question is, what is the battle about? What is the battle for? And the answer is, the battle is a battle for faith. The battle is a battle to believe the Word of God. The Bible calls it the good fight of faith. And even though we are always in this battle, yet there are certain times when the battle becomes more intense than others. There are certain times when the battle is, is, is much more difficult than at other times. And usually at these times, it's during some kind of crisis in our lives. It might be death, it might be a sickness, it might be our plans that just didn't go the way we wanted them to. But crises often uh, bring into our lives this reality of whether our faith is true or not. It brings us to a crisis of faith. For instance, my son, a number of years ago, had these seizures. And uh, during these seizures, he would stop breathing. And it brought great fear into our hearts. And obviously, this was a short-lived crisis. And he is totally recovered. So we praise God for that. But it was a crisis of faith. It was a difficult time that we went through. And the question is, were we going to believe God? Were we going to trust in God at that time? And what makes these battles even more challenging is that the enemy will try to use these crises and these times to undermine our faith. He takes advantage of these opportunities to try to undermine and destroy our faith. And all the enemy wants to do is destroy your faith. That's all he wants to do. He wants to attack your faith. He wants to undermine it. He wants to destroy it. He wants to question whether God is really trustworthy. He wants you to question whether God really wants what is best for you. In Isaiah chapter 36 that we're looking at today, Judah faces a crisis. And the crisis is in the form of the Assyrian invasion. And not only do they face this great crisis, but they're also going to have to hear the voice of the enemy who's going to try to exploit the moment and undermine their faith and cause them to, to turn away from God, to not believe in God, to not trust in God, to surrender to them. And as we listen to these verses, as we hear this passage, what I want to do, I want you to do, is I want you to ask the question, how does the enemy attack our faith? How does the enemy work to attack my faith? What are his tactics? How does, he, how does he pursue to destroy my faith? The Bible says that we are not to be ignorant of his devices. And so as I read chapter 36, please follow along and look as I read this passage for how the enemy works to destroy your faith. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you tr now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and I take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah lead, mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with her clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So first what you see here is the crisis in verse 1. Here are the Assyrians, the biggest, the most scariest, the most powerful bullies of the world. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has led his army in the direction of Jerusalem, and he's trying to squash various revolts that have come up against him and his kingdom. One by one, he topples the nations over, None of the nations even stand a chance against the Assyrians. One of the biggest ringleaders 
of the revolt against the Assyrians is Hezekiah, who is king of Judah. And so, really, Hezekiah has a mark, a bullseye on his head. Uh, Sennacherib wants to teach him a lesson. He wants him to, to make an example of Hezekiah, of what happens to those who stand against the Assyrians. So Sennacherib invades Judah and conquers all her fortified cities, except Jerusalem. Now you really have to imagine here, you have to imagine all of those who have escaped the Assyrians are now hunkered, cowered into the walls of Jerusalem. And here they are crammed together. And all they can look forward to is either death by the Assyrians or a siege where eventually they would die of starvation or they would be killed by diseases or they would kill each other. Everything looks hopeless for Judah. Here comes the voice of the enemy. At this point, the enemy takes the stage in verses 2 through 3, and he will attempt to undermine the faith of the Judeans. He wants to call them to surrender in verses 2 through 3. Now, I want us to understand that the Rabshakeh is the field commander. He's a man in high position, and he's representing Sennacherib. And he brings with him a, this army that is supposed to add to the intimidation of his words. And so if you're like me, you might wonder, why in the world would he want to uh, speak to the Judeans? Why would he want to speak to them? Why wouldn't he just conquer them? And the answer is because a, a siege or an attack is, is going to be costly. It would be so much easier if they would just surrender to him. And so that's why he sends the Rabshakeh to try to convince them to surrender to him. And there's something very significant about the location for where he meets with Judah. And maybe you remember what the significance is. One reason that makes it significant is because they meet at the, at the water supply. They meet at the pool. And the water supply was incredibly strategic when there was a siege. Because if they could cut off the water supply, then they would be quickly doomed to death. But there's something much more significant than that here. You see, this is the exact place where Isaiah had met with Ahaz in chapter 7, when they were under another crisis and another threat. Remember, Ahaz has, had called, uh, Isaiah had called Ahaz to trust in God, but Ahaz refused. And Isaiah said something to him. He said the consequence would be that the Assyrians would invade their land. And that's exactly what we see going on here. And so here is Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And he is at the pivotal moment. Will he make the same mistake that his father made? Will he trust God or will he fail to trust God as his father had done? So how does the enemy work to undermine the faith of his people? Well, for the rest of our time, we will hear the voice of the enemy. And we will look to see how he undermines the faith of God's people as he encourages them to surrender to him in verses 4 through 20. And notice 
the beginning here of his attack. He begins by failing to mention Hezekiah's title while mentioning the title of King Sennacherib and even emphasizing the greatness of it. We are off to a good start, aren't we? He then asks the central question that he's going to build his whole argument around. Who are you trusting in? In other words, what would give you such confidence that you could stand against the great Assyrians? Now, obviously, he's not concerned about what they're trusting in for their sake. He wants to do everything he can to undermine whatever they're trusting in. He wants to expose the hopelessness of their situation so that they will surrender to him. But we know, ironically, that this is the very question that the whole book of Isaiah has been asking so far. Who are you trusting in? That is the most important question of our lives. Who are you trusting in today to save you? The verbal attack begins in verse 6. He says, It is hopeless for you to trust in the nations to deliver you. They can't save you. Notice that Judah did in fact turn to the Egyptians for help. They realized they were in great trouble and the only hope was to turn to the Egyptians for help they felt. And the Rabshakeh knows what they have done. He knows that they turned to the Egyptians for help. He's fully aware of what they did. And so he compares the Egyptian help to a broken reed of a staff in order to expose the, the helplessness of that strategy. You see, he says that turning to the Egyptians is kind of like leaning on a staff that is broken. It's not going to do you any good. But more so, not only is it not going to do you any good, not only is leaning on the staff going to not help you, but also it's going to give you a splinter. It's going to, it's going to cut you. It's going to hurt you. It's going to do worse for you. And in fact, the Egyptians did come to the aid of Judah, didn't they? And the Assyrians made a quick end to them. They were helpless in aiding Hezekiah and the Judeans. And in fact, all it did was make the Assyrians more angry at Hezekiah. So in fact, not only was it like leaning against a broken staff, but it actually hurt them even worse. And so the point here is that Hezekiah and Judah should not trust in the nations around them. They should rather give up and surrender to the Assyrians. So then we move to attack number two. He says it is not only hopeless to turn to the nations around you, but it's also hopeless to trust in yourselves to save you. You have no ability to save yourselves. It is useless to trust in yourself for salvation. We see that in verses 8 through 9. The Rabshakeh makes this incredible wager, doesn't he? He says, okay, if you can mount 2,000 horses, we will supply you with 2,000 horses for war against us. What an incredible offer, but it's not genuine, is it? He is pointing out the fact that they have this incredible supply of artillery. They have this incredible force of horses. They have everything they need to wage a war and a battle. 
This was like the ultimate fighting power of the day. And Judah was often in short supply of them. But not only that, he also criticizes their ability to fight in a war. He says, I will give them to you if you could mount them for war. He's saying, you don't even have enough people to fight against me. Not only do I have riches of supplies for war, but you have nothing. You don't even have the power to fight against me. He therefore points, points out again that Hezekiah should give up. Hezekiah should not even attempt to, uh, f- to stand against the Assyrians, but rather surrender to them. Then we move to attack number three. He then moves to cut off another hope, doesn't he? He says it is hopeless to trust in God. And notice the reasons he gives here. First of all, God is angry with you. And second of all, and he says this in verse 10, he says, rather God is on our side. Hezekiah was not a perfect king, was he? But he was a very good king. In fact, in 2 Kings 18.5, it says there was no one like him before or after. And one of the great things he did is when he first took office, he um, sought to bring revival to the whole land. And in doing so, he had all the high places, the altars in the high places cut down. Incredible revival he brought to the people. He restored worship. And the Assyrians were well aware of this. And so the Rabshakeh was a great politician, wasn't he? He was great at politics, but he was a terrible theologian. He was a pagan. He had no idea about the things of God. And so he thought that the more worship centers you had, the more opportunity you had to manipulate the gods and get what you wanted from them. And so it would be totally pointless to cut down the high places. Why would he do that? The only thing it would do in his mind is make the gods angry. Not only that, but he also wrongly thinks that God is on their side and that God told them to destroy Judah. You see, there's a little bit of truth mixed in here, isn't there? You see, Assyria was the rod of God's anger. But God did not tell them to destroy Judah for the reasons that they are thinking here. And God was not on the side of the Assyrians either. His point is this. It is hopeless to trust in God for deliverance. Because God is not for you, he is for us. And so once again, give up. Give up. You are hopeless. You cannot defeat us. Surrender to the Assyrians. So far what we've seen is the strategy of the enemy is to mix a little bit of truth with a whole lot of error. Isaiah said, don't trust in Egypt, right? That's true. Isaiah said, don't trust in yourselves. That's true. Isaiah said that Assyria was the rod of God's anger. That's true. Satan can make his argument sound so convincing, can't he? By mixing a little bit of truth with a whole lot of error. Why not surrender to the enemy? Why not give in, we think? Why not look a little spiritual while embracing the world? That's what happens when we mix truth with error. We get a little bit of spirituality with a whole lot of the world, and we end up with nothing. So at this point, the Judean leaders are especially concerned because they realize that the common people who are huddled all around the wall are hearing 
the arguments of the Rabshakeh. And they get really scared. You see, the Rabshakeh is speaking in the Hebrew language. He is not speaking in the, in the diplomatic language that was Aramaic. And so they ask him, please speak in Aramaic. Please speak in a way that the people can't hear you. Well, obviously, the Rabshakeh is thinking of this as an advantage that he has to try to convince everybody to uh, surrender. And so he takes advantage of the opportunity. And he says, this message is, in fact, not only for Hezekiah and the leaders, but for everybody to hear. And so he moves even more to attack and to tell them why they need to surrender, to undermine their faith. And this brings us to attack number four. Here he argues that the things will be worse for them if they do not surrender to him. And not only that, but he promises that things will get much greater if they do surrender to him. He promises them much better life and peace and prosperity if they surrender to him. Doesn't that sound satanic? Well, it is. And we see that in verses 16 through 17. A siege was typically an unspeakably awful and terrible experience. You can just imagine thousands of people gathered together who have escaped the warfare in, in this main city behind its walls. Life would quickly become intolerable, unlivable in such conditions. The enemy would also be pounding on the wall, seeking to break into the wall and to kill you. So in order to persuade them to surrender, he warns them of the harsh realities of siege warfare that was awaiting them. And he uses the strongest language possible to scare them. He says, if you continue to trust in God through Hezekiah's leadership, they would end up eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. And everyone knew this was true. And he promises instead, he brings before them this incredible promises that if they surrender to him, then good times are going to come. Good times will flow into your lives. You will experience good things. And notice, he says, they will enjoy their own land for a time before he uh, uh, deports them to another country where they'll enjoy other good times, just as great of times there with the land that they are given. Now notice he doesn't cover up the fact of that they were very famous for, of deporting the different nations that they would conquer so that they would lose their nationality and, and intermarry with other people. And so they would not be as fanatical and passionate about their nationality anymore. I think if he ignored that, they would have known he was lying to them. And so he speaks somewhat truthfully that they will enjoy their land and then enjoy even better land after he deports them. The point is this, throw your lot in with the Assyrians and you will thrive. Life will get better for you. This would sound like a cup of cold water to a dying soul. This would sound like a great exchange. The exchange of enslavement for a little bit of pleasure. Does the path of faith, which is submission to God, ever sound like death to you? Does the path of unbelief, the promises of the world, ever sound like life to you? Of course it does. To all of us it does sometimes. And that is the battle, isn't it? The battle is to believe and trust in God's word that he is better than the offer of the world. 
What would it take? The fear of loss or the promise of better things for the enemy to persuade you to abandon your faith. This brings us to the final attack. It is the most evil attack of all. He raises his voice at this point, it says, and argues that God could not deliver you even if he wanted to. God is not powerful enough to deliver you. In fact, he's no better than all the gods of the nations that are all around them that they have conquered. All the man-made gods. God is no greater than they are. And so there's no use of trusting in God to deliver you. We see this in verses 13 through 15 and 18 through 20. There is hardly a greater insult you can ever make to God than to claim that he can't save you. To claim that God can't save you is to claim that God is not that powerful. It's to claim that God is not all-powerful. It's to claim that God is not sovereign. It's to attack his character. It's to say that God is a liar and that he's not good. He then adds to the insult by claiming that God is on the same level as all the other man-made gods around them. You see, they believed when they defeated a nation that that meant that they had defeated the God of that nation. And so one by one, as they defeated the nations, they would think in their heads, we are greater than those gods. We are, we are superior to them. And so they put the God of the Judeans in the same category as all the other gods, even though they hadn't defeated them yet. They said, your God is no better than their gods. This is as if they had already defeated them completely. And so they said, your God is no better than they are. No better than the man-made gods of the world. This is clearly where the Rabshakeh made his fatal error. You see, he pits himself not against Judah, but against God himself. Attacking God's character is never a good idea. Not only does he attack God's character, but he also magnifies himself based on his success. Many people today are so deceived by their success, aren't they? They think that their success is to be attributed to themselves. And so they think they're a little better than those around them whom they have gained success over. And so they wrongly think that they are like God. They take the position of God themselves, when in fact it is God himself who raised them up to do this. They have no right to gain credit for themselves, but this is what it does. We magnify ourselves above others and claim the glory for our success. You see, this is the heart of the argument that the enemy, the world, the flesh has been making since the fall. This is what man does when he suppresses the truth according to Romans 1 verses 18. You suppress the truth by not honoring God as God and by not giving thanks to God. In other words, you suppress the truth by saying that God is not all that great. And he cannot save you. He is not all that powerful. He's not all that good. He is not all that magnificent. In other words, you don't really need him. And this is the fundamental problem with the world. It has always been the problem with the world and always will be. So if you're a believer, I want you to know today that you are engaged in a real battle. This is a battle for the faith. It's a battle to trust in God, that he is true and that he is trustworthy. What we see here 
is that this battle being waged is a real battle. It's a real war. And it's about real faith and trust in God. You see, we don't have a hypothetical, subjective faith. We're not fighting a hypothetical or subjective battle. We are fighting a real battle in real life that we experience. And what we see when we look at the Judeans and Hezekiah, we see that this battle is real. And this battle is really going on. And it's based on the realities of life that we experience. And your faith will be most tested through these crises. One of the most dangerous misconceptions we can have is to think that if we're following God, that we'll be able to avoid the crisis of life. We must remember that Hezekiah was a man of God, unparalleled in his faithfulness to God, according to 2 Kings 18.5. You might think that such a life would be followed by ease and comfort, health and wealth. You might think that after such faithfulness, that God would reward him with an easy life. But what is the response to his faithfulness? Well, a great crisis of unparalleled proportions comes into his life. Such a crisis is what we are destined for if we are following God, according to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. We are destined for them. And we need to understand that they're going to come our way. And don't think because you are following Christ that the crisis will be less in your life. That's just not true. You need to know that at such times the enemy will use the situation to try to undermine your faith. He will tell you that God cannot be trusted. He wants to destroy your faith. Now whether or not that leads you into immorality, it might lead you into self-righteousness. It might lead you to a life that appears righteous on the outside. But his goal is to undermine your faith and oftentimes it will lead you to immorality. But his point is to undermine your faith. That's all that matters to him. To somehow chip away at the foundation of what you believe in, at your trust in God in any way he can. And this is exactly what Paul says he was most concerned about in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 through 5. Hear these verses and listen to what Paul is concerned about here. And notice it's the exact same thing we are looking at in this passage. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is so concerned about the Thessalonians because he knows the strategy of the enemy. He knows he wants to turn them away from the faith and to use crisis as a means to do that in their lives. And he says if they abandoned the faith, his ministry would be in vain. It would be fruitless. And so he is very concerned. And this is why, to fight well, we need to be aware of the enemy's tactics. That he will try to undermine your faith. And we need, if we're to fight well, we need to understand how he's going to do this. And this passage shows us that he will include some truth with error, won't he? He will fight you by adding a little bit of truth to his error that he's going to give to you. He's going to twist, manipulate, add to the truth in order to somehow undermine your faith. 
And that's really what makes it so persuasive, doesn't it? Most religious systems, if you look at them, they can have a little bit or a lot of truth in, in, in their system. And that's what makes it so tempting and so appealing. When you get a little bit of the world mixed with, with, uh, with a little bit of the truth, then you feel like you have the best of both worlds. But really, you have nothing. And this is why we so badly need to know God's word. We need to know it well. We need to understand it. We also see that he will make the way of faith look unpromising and the way of unbelief to look much more promising. Satan's scheme is to undermine your faith by putting doubts in your mind about the goodness of God. You see, this is really what the battle is about, isn't it? Is God good? Every day we have to fight the battle to believe and to taste of the goodness of God. And that is why it is not an option. It's a command for us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is where the battle will be fought, where it will be won, or it will be lost. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We take refuge in God by taking, by tasting and seeing that he is good. In fact, if we are to ever survive these battles, we must beforehand be tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Not only knowing that he is good with our mind, but tasting of the goodness of God. That's the only way we're going to ever fight and win the battle that is before us. He will also say that God does not want to deliver you. He will say that God does not love you, that God is, not mad, is, is mad at you. But that's not true for you, believer. God could not be more for you than he is. If he did not spare his own son, how will he also not freely with him give you all things? Romans 8, verse 32. That's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he has given you the greatest thing, how will he not with him also give you every lesser thing? He could not be more for you, believer, than he is. Don't listen to the lie. His message will say that God cannot deliver you. His message will say, God can't deliver you. Why would you trust in a God who can't deliver you? But God does not only want to deliver you, he can deliver you. He is powerful enough to deliver you. He is the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is powerful to save. He not only wants to deliver you, he will deliver you, believer. And he will save you. So how do you arm yourself for the battle so that you keep the faith when the offensive is, is against you? How do you take the offense of yourself and fight against the, the, the ways of the devil and the schemes of the devil? Well, first you've got to know the character of God. God does not change. He is therefore able to save. He is powerful to save. Hold fast to Christ and his work as the basis for why he will save you. The only reason why God will save you is because of Christ. And because of Christ, he wants to save you. He desires to save you. He is determined to save you. And nothing can stand against him saving you because of Christ. Thirdly, taste and see the goodness of God yourself. That's how we undermine the schemes of the devil. We taste and see that the Lord is good. We know the goodness of God and we believe the goodness of God and we experience the goodness of God. Also, we must keep an eye to the future promises of God. Remember that God's promises will be fulfilled in their fullness. 
We will see the promises of God. We will see the goodness of God in its fullness one day. And we must wait with anticipation for those promises. Live in view of the promises of God. They are coming. That's how we fight well against the schemes of the devil. Pray for faith and embrace the gift of his church. Fight with the church and fight through prayer. Know that faith in the crisis is always going to look extreme. It's always going to look audacious in the moment of a crisis. To not surrender to the Assyrians would look foolish to the world. Why wouldn't they live for another day so that they could serve God tomorrow? But you see, nominal, half-hearted, semi-dedicated faith, non-discipleship faith, no-cost faith is not real faith to begin with. True faith says that God is able to save and he is going to save. And therefore, I will trust in him even when it costs me everything. That's what it looks like to live by faith. God can deliver me and he will deliver me. Even when everything else says otherwise. We, real faith trusts God in the most critical and crucial circumstances. Real faith is radical. So here is an encouragement for you I want to leave you with as we close. I, wa I want you to take hold of this encouragement. You see, the enemy is great and powerful, and he has a purpose. But I want you to know that our God is infinitely greater in power, and he has a greater and overriding purpose. He is going to use the enemy and his schemes and his purposes for his own purpose. He has a greater purpose for those things. And his greater purpose is to strengthen you through the crisis. And the greater purpose is to glorify his own great name by displaying your faith for the world to see. And the world will see the greatness of our God as we live by faith, especially during the time of the crisis. Praise God that he is greater than the enemy. And praise God that you do not have to fear that God is with you, and that we can fight with confidence until our last breath, when that battle is finally over. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are reminded today that we are in a real battle. The enemy is real, but so are you, a mighty, and powerful God who is infinitely greater than the enemy we are facing. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you have accomplished. We thank you that you are the one who will fight for us, that you are the one who will give us victory, and that victory is through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to take up our swords. Help us to take up the offense. Help us to not be ignorant of the devil's devices. Help us to be aware of the reality of this difficult battle we are in and help us to fight well and help us to trust in you. Help us to depend on you knowing that you will bring us safely to the other side, knowing that you will bring us to victory. And Lord, I thank you for the promises of God. I thank you that you are exceedingly better. I thank you for your truth that you've given us with too. I thank you, Lord, that you are that you want to deliver us and that you will deliver us and that you are able to deliver us. 
We love you and we praise you. Our eyes are on you, Jesus. We look to you. You are our great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.